The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing well, Father. Good. good. How's Leo doing? He's good. He's good. He's getting big. Getting big. Yep. He's a great baby. No complaints there. Uh, Father, we have a lot to discuss tonight, if you're up for it, <laughs> um, but we actually, uh, surprisingly, have a few very nice emails that I'd like to uh, like to read just Well, most just, of our viewers are very kind. I most of them, so yes, Father. I'd expect that most would be really nice. <laughs> uh, but just one, one quick one here. This, um, this viewer says, I watch your videos from time to time and, and invariably find them of great interest. Father Jenkins' insights and arguments are an inspiration and illumination. Please send him my best regards. Uh, he says all of the uh, content is is great that we produce, and he thanks you very much, Father, for all of your work. So, well, I thank nice. him too. I appreciate the the encouragement. We we need the encouragement to yeah. know that we're doing something that actually is a benefit to people. So, yeah. thank you for your letting us know that. Definitely. All right, um, then, Father, we uh, <clears throat> received an email that uh, I'd, I'd really like to get your take on this. We've uh, done a, a bit of research, I believe you're prepared here to, to discuss this, but one of our viewers wrote in and said that uh, he has a relative who, um, who believes that um, your position on the syllabus of errors uh, could perhaps be heretical, they uh, use the word there. They say that, um, <clears throat> that Father, apparently uh, in one of our, our previous videos that we have posted on the website, uh, that you apparently say some of the teachings in the syllabus of errors uh, are not entirely infallible. So as viewer wants to know, first of all, is that true? Um, is, is the syllabus itself infallible? Are only some of the pronouncements and the syllabus fallible? What is the, the correct uh, church teaching on this? And what do you say, Father? Well, I'd, I'd have to ask for a clarification. Uh, because it, does it actually say in the message that I say that some of the, uh, some of the uh, things taught, some of the things taught are not entirely infallible? Those things can't be partially infallible <laughs> yeah. in the sense that a statement can't be partially infallible. Uh, that, that's, what that's, exactly does it say? That's the claim. It says, it says, Father Jenkins says the teachings in the syllabus of errors are not entirely infallible. Okay, but he's taking it as, a, as an entire entirety. That, so in the sense that not all of the teachings contained there are infallible. Some are and some are not. That's my is what he's implying that I'm saying here. Yeah. And that that would be heretical to say that not everything contained, right? Mm-hmm. All the propositions uh, condemned condemned in the syllabus of errors are condemned infallibly, right? Mm-hmm. I understand. Well, uh, if one actually uh, looks up the word heresy, as it is understood in the church, and I think it's a good idea that we take a look at that, because the word heresy is being used heretically. <laughs> it's, it's being abused terribly by people who really don't know what heresy is. Not according to the church. People think that uh, whatever uh, they think is contrary to what's in the catechism must immediately be heresy. And it's kind of a, the default word that they go to. And I'm not going to use Latin texts here because I find that people um, their eyes glaze over. But I think the Latinists among us can check the texts and find out, and find out that they are accurate. Okay, and I'm using here a practical commentary on the Code of Canon Law by Wywad and Smith. Okay, so it's a very standard commentary on the Code of Canon Law. I mean, every, every priest, every traditional priest who's ordained has at least one copy of this on the shelf. And it gives us uh, the canons pertaining to her- what heresy is, okay? Yeah. 
And we're looking here at Canon 1325. This is in the 1917-1918 Code of Canon Law. Okay, And there we read, Any baptized person who, while retaining the name of Christian, obstinately denies or doubts any of the truths proposed for belief by the divine and Catholic faith is a heretic. Okay? They tell you, who is a heretic? <clears throat> that is a baptized person, still claiming to be a Christian, who obstinately denies or doubts any of the truths proposed for belief by divine and Catholic faith. Okay, that's the, the sense, the obligation of belief is by divine and Catholic faith. One who <clears throat> meets that description is a heretic. It continues, by the way, if he abandons the Christian faith entirely, and he completely gives up the name of Christian, then he's uh, an apostate. <clears throat> okay? So, and it, it also continues there, although this might muddy the waters, if he refuses to be subject to the Supreme Pontiff or to have communion, communication with the members of the Church subject to the Pope, he is a schismatic. Okay? So it divines these three. Now, you know, we, we could go off on a tangent there in, in looking at the last question of schism. One of these days, we probably should look at that a little more closely, right? But, um, you know, I, I would I would say, for the time being, the matter here has to do with heresy, right. okay? And that's where we should focus for the time being. There's, there's certainly, there are good questions about the question of schism, questions that need to be asked, and there are good answers too, okay? So people should just kind of hold their horses on that, but... So this is what tells us the obligation of belief that if one defies that obligation, obstinately refuses it to believe doctrines by divine and Catholic faith, that person is a heretic, okay? Now, what does it mean to have an obligation to believe a doctrine by divine and Catholic faith? Well, again, the, the Church gives us the answer to that in Canon 1323 by the divine and Catholic faith must be believed all those truths which are contained in the word of God as written or handed down to us and which are either by solemn pronouncement or by the ordinary and universal teaching of the church proposed for belief as divinely revealed truths. Okay, So that explains what must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith. Okay, It must be a doctrine that meets all of those criteria. Right? Now, as far as the syllabus goes, because evidently someone's relative has accused me of being a heretic, because I say not all of the propositions contained within the the syllabus of errors and condemned in the syllabus of errors are necessarily condemned infallibly, okay? <clears throat> uh, again, with turning to a source that virtually any Catholic has it at ready, readily at hand, and in a language, you know, we can understand, or they can understand, I refer them to the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia. And in the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia, we have an entry syllabus, okay? And this article refers to both the syllabus of Pope Pius IX and Lamentabili Sane of Pope St. Pius X. Okay, it refers to both of those under the same heading of syllabus. It gives a very nice history of the development of the syllabus of Pope Pius IX, which is definitely worth reading. And then it comes to the question of binding power, okay? So again, this has to do with the obligation of belief, right? But does, does one become a heretic for uh, saying that not every proposition, because it's in the syllabus itself, is necessarily infallibly uh, decreed and, and the proposition infallibly condemned? Well, this is what the Catholic Encyclopedia says with regard to the binding power of the syllabus that was attached to the encyclical Quanticura by Pope Pius IX, right? We're talking about the year 1864. Quote, The binding power of the syllabus of Pius IX is differently explained by Catholic theologians. He gives, he's heavily referenced here too, referring to the different traditionally recognized Catholic theologians. 
All are of the opinion that many of the propositions are condemned, if not in the syllabus, then certainly in other final decisions of the infallible authority of the Church. For instance, in the encyclical Quanticura, that's the encyclical to which this was attached, right? There is no argument, however, on the question whether each thesis condemned in the syllabus is infallibly false, merely because it is condemned in the syllabus. Many theologians are of the opinion that to the syllabus as such, an infallible teaching authority is to be ascribed, whether due to an extra ex cathedra decision by the Pope, or to the subsequent acceptance by the Church. Others, it says many theologians believe this, but not all. It says others question this. So long as Rome has not decided the question, everyone is free to follow the opinion or position he chooses. Even should the condemnation of many propositions not possess that unchangeableness peculiar to infallible decisions, nevertheless, the binding force of the condemnation in regard to all the propositions is beyond doubt. He says, For the syllabus, as appears from the official communication of Cardinal Antonelli, who was the Secretary of State under Pius IX, is a decision given by the Pope speaking as universal teacher and judge to Catholics. The world over, all Catholics, therefore, are bound to accept the syllabus. Exteriorly, they may neither in word nor in writing oppose its contents. They must also assent to it interiorly. <clears throat> the point being that he makes here, though, is that there are many theologians, many agree with this, he doesn't even say most, that they are infallible because they are contained in the syllabus itself. But uh, there are others, he doesn't say many, he doesn't say most, he just said others who hold that they are not infallible necessarily because they are in the syllabus, but that you must look for the authority in the references that direct you to their original source. Mm -hmm. And this is something we find in these propositions. They refer to previous statements of the Holy See. And so there are theologians who say that the authority vested in each of these condemnations comes from the original right. condemnation, not because they are gathered together, because they were gathered together actually by a kind of committee. You know, they were actually, there were, there were theologians assigned to, to gather them. They were issued together with uh, an encyclical Quanticura. They were not part of the encyclical. Okay? So theologians argue these things. No one denies that they must be accepted, be accepted by all faithful Catholics. No one denies that. that the propositions included in the syllabus of Pope Pius IX are in fact condemned by the Church. But at the same time, there are many theologians, and they're good traditional Catholic theologians of the past, <clears throat> who say that they do not all have infallible authority behind them just because they're included in the syllabus. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually when you have an infallible statement of the church, you have language connoting infallibility, the invocation of supreme authority and to bind the consciences of the Catholic people, explicitly stating so, you know, now and forever, right, throughout the world and throughout time. The syllabus doesn't, but I think the next the next statement that is regarding the syllabus of St. Pius X, or what is Lamentabili Sane, I think is even clearer than that. And this is what it says. Many theses of the syllabus of Pius X, at that time he wasn't canonized in 1913, actually he was still alive at the time, <clears throat> as all Catholic theologians affirm, are heresies. And uh, so, that is infallibly false, for their contradictory is dogma. In other words, they contradict divine dogma. They contradict truths that must be believed by divine Catholic faith. Okay? As the Code of Canon Law said. And it says many of the theses, many theses of the syllabus of Pius X, as all Catholic theologians affirm, are heresies, 
that is infallibly false for their contradictory is dogma. Or in many cases, even fundamental dogma or an article of faith in the Catholic Church. With regard to the question of whether the syllabus is in itself an infallible dogmatic decision, theologians hold opposite opinions. Some maintain that the decree is infallible on account of its confirmation or sanction by the Pope. Others defend the opinion that the decree remains nevertheless the doctrinal decision of a Roman congregation. And it's a fact. The Roman congregation issued this Lamentabili Sunday and is viewed precisely as such, not absolutely immune from error. In this theological dispute, therefore, liberty of opinion, which has always been safeguarded by the church is in undecided questions, still remains to us. Now, this Lamentabili Sunday is issued during the reign of St. Pius X, and this article in the Catholic Encyclopedia was published at this, you know, well, during the lifetime of St. Pius X. Also, yet all theologians agree that no Catholic is allowed to maintain any of the condemned theses. For in the decrees of a Roman congregation, we not only have the verdict of a scientific commission, which gives its decisions only after close investigation, but also the pronouncement of a legitimate religious authority competent to bind the whole church in questions within its competence. And they refer us to what has been said above regarding the syllabus of Pope Pius, Pius IX. So the point is that they're dealing with the question exactly of whether it's heretical or not. Uh, all the propositions are by the, by the very fact that they're contained and condemned within these two syllabi, so, so to speak, of the Pope's Pius IX and St. Pius X, are therefore infallibly condemned, and therefore they must be accepted as false by divine Catholic faith, which would make it heretical to, to question them, right? <clears throat> Uh, as I guess this uh, person is doing in my case. But the point is that that is the, the exactly the disputed point. And it has to do with the very nature of what heresy is and the obligation to believe the truths and to reject what is contrary to the truths, as we find in the syllabus of uh, Pius IX and Pius X. So people have to be very careful when they go around accusing other people of heresy, right? Because it would be a very serious error and calumny to accuse someone of heresy when he's not denying something, but he has an obligation to believe by divine Catholic faith. And this is what the theologians themselves were not decided about. There are theological opinions on both sides. And this had not been resolved, at least even by St. Pius X, during his own lifetime. Right? Now, if someone can produce a statement, you know, an authoritative statement by the Holy See saying that this, the statements uh, contained within the syllabuses are uh, condemned uh, infallibly and they, their condemnation must be accepted as a matter of divine Catholic faith, then they're fine. It would be heresy to embrace them or even to, to question them, to open the door to them, right? But that would have to be done before anybody could be accused of being a heretic. Right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the point they're making, by the way, in the article is that all Catholics accept the fact yeah. that these are condemned. <laughs> because the Church doesn't have to use its supreme apostolic authority uh, for Catholics to, to accept its rulings, right? Uh, this, is, this is the point. We have an obligation as Catholics to believe things, mm -hmm. right? That the church condemns, and uh, this is one reason. I mean, there are those who would say, "Aha! You see, we caught you now because you uh, you say that Vatican II is wrong, right?" And uh, you do that on your own authority. And we say, "Well, actually, no. We recognize the errors of Vatican II because it contradicts the teachings of the Church of the past." Okay. And uh, I'm glad. What I'm getting at, actually, I'm actually getting at something. Tom, believe it or not. Uh, I'm getting at a point that I think this writer brings up, 
obliquely, not intentionally, but very uh, uh, happily, <laughs> brings up not only the writer himself or herself, but the relative who is accusing of heresy. Uh, and it brings up a very question, a question about um, how, how can we do this judgment of Vatican II? <laughs> we talk about what heresy is. We talk about uh, <clears throat> how Catholics have, a, have an obligation to believe in conscience even things that are not uh, defined, uh, even things that are not solidly defined by the Church. <clears throat> um, pronouncements even by Roman congregations, right? within their confidence. So how do we find fault with Vatican II? Well, go to the encyclical to which the syllabus of errors of Pope Pius IX was attached. That encyclical was called Quanta Cura. The encyclical was issued with the syllabus of errors again in, nine, in 1864. And uh, you find something rather interesting in here you find the doctrine of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and here you find a textbook, textbook example of exactly what the Code of Canon Law says must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith. Remember what it says here. Remember what it says. <clears throat> um, let me turn, turn back here. Any baptized person who, while retaining the name of a Christian, obstinately denies or doubts any of the truths proposed for belief by the divine and Catholic faith is a heretic. And then you go back to Canon 3, 1323, and you read, by the divine and Catholic faith must be believed all those truths which are contained in the Word of God, in sacred scripture, that is, as written or handed down to us, tradition, right? and which are either by solemn pronouncement or by the ordinary and universal teaching of the Church proposed for belief as divinely revealed truths. So if the Church, in her solemn pronouncement, the extraordinary magisterium of the Church, or by her ordinary and universal teaching, proposes for belief as divinely revealed something contained in divine revelation in the Word of God or in sacred tradition, that binds a Catholic conscience to believe it, by divine and Catholic faith, that to deny it would be heretical. A person would be a heretic. And you look at this encyclical of Pope, Saint, Pope Pius IX, 1964, and you read this. I'm going to read you this whole paragraph, because it all applies. <clears throat> For you well know, venerable brethren, that at this time men are found, not a few, who applying to civil society the impious and absurd principle of naturalism, as they call it, dare to teach that, quote, the best constitution of public society and also civil progress altogether require that human society be conducted and government governed without regard being had to religion any more than if it did not exist, or at least without any distinction being made between the true religion and false ones. And he continues here. That's the end of quote there. <clears throat> He's obviously taking that statement directly from something else, right? It's a statement made by someone who is teaching that. And he's citing that as an example of what is false and pernicious. And he continues. And against the doctrine of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers. Now, now listen to what that says. Here's what he says. Against the doctrine of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers. So there we have brought together sacred scripture, tradition, the writings of the fathers, and the church herself. And you see what he says, by divine and Catholic faith must be believed all those truths which are contained in the word of God, sacred scripture, as written or handed down to us, tradition, in which are by solemn pronouncement or by ordinary universal teaching of the church proposed for belief. All three of those elements are contained right there in that statement. He says, and against the doctrines of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers, they do not hesitate to assert that, quote, that is the best condition of civil society in which no duty is recognized as attached to the civil power of restraining by enacted penalties offenders against the Catholic religion 
except so far as public peace may require. Now that statement could be taken right out of of uh, Dignitati Sumani Personi, the last the um, the dignity of, of the dignity of the human person, the last constitution, the last statement I should say of Vatican II, the last document produced by Vatican II, the Dignitati Sumani Personi, the day of the dignity of the human person <clears throat> proposes his exact idea, the exact idea that is condemned here. And according to Pope Pius IX, he says, it's a doctrine of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers, all of those. And they are there in, in Vatican II, in that last document, they are diametrically opposed to that and actually saying exactly the contrary to it. And he continues, from which totally false idea of social government, they do not fear to foster that erroneous opinion, most fatal in its effects on the Catholic Church, and the salvation of souls, called by our predecessor Gregory the Sixteenth, an insanity. That liberty of conscience and worship is each man's personal right, which ought to be legally proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society, and that a right resides in the citizens to an absolute liberty, which should be restrained by no authority, whether ecclesiastical or civil whereby they may be able openly and publicly to manifest and declare any of their ideas, whatever, either by word of mouth, by the press, or in any other way. But while they rashly affirm this, they do not think and consider that they are preaching, quote, liberty of perdition, and that if human arguments are always allowed free room for discussion, there will never be wanting men who will dare to resist truth and to trust in the flowing speech of human wisdom, whereas we know from the very teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ how carefully Christian faith and wisdom should avoid this most injurious babbling. <clears throat> so he cites the term liberty of perdition, which, Saint, which Leo XIII is going to quote later in the encyclical Libertas Prisantissimum, again talking about this liberty of perdition, which is absolute unrestrained ability to voice any and every opinion, no matter how blasphemous, and here you have a Vatican II saying this is a God-given right, even to blaspheme God, that God gives the right to blaspheme him. It's a civil right, and no one, no one can oppose it or deny that right to anyone. How could God give a right to anyone to blaspheme him? He who is the truth itself, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he gives a right, a civil right to people in human society, civil society, to blaspheme him and to teach contrary to his teaching, and to lead souls away from him, and to deceive them, right? Only someone who did not believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, only when someone who didn't believe in the, in the God of Catholicism or Christianity, only someone who didn't believe that could propose that, and yet it is exactly the teaching of Vatican II in right human liberty, religious liberty, and it's exactly what Pope Pius IX is condemning here. And he's condemning it exactly with the terminology which the Code of Canon Law later says constitutes something that would make someone a heretic mm -hmm. to condemn because it is a truth that is proposed by the Church for belief, right? As contained, as revealed by God in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. So, in any case, uh, that's the problem here. I'm, so I'm glad the, the writer brought that up, because now we're talking about real heresy. So let them uh, go to that last section here. We talk about schism. And let's, let's realize that the, the problem comes down to, uh, not in anyone's mind, opposing the real authority of a Roman pontiff. Because no Catholic would be able to do that and still be a Catholic. But the problem is not whether you are defying the voice of, let's say, the command of your father. The problem is that questioning whether it is your father's voice. Is it the voice of the shepherd or not? That's the issue here. And that's the question they have to answer. You know? Father, that, that almost you know, seems to kind of be very, very uh, common 
sense, you know, it, it wouldn't be very practical at all for uh, for the church to have her, her children operate in, in the manner where, you know, every time any kind of question whatsoever arose, they would have to kind of wait for a, a uh, you know, infallible proclamation to come from the Holy See, especially in the, uh, you know, in the early days, in the beginning of the church, when it when it took so long to, to kind of get, you know, word from Rome out to all, to all that. Well, know. you're right, it wouldn't be practical, but even morally it wouldn't be right. I mean, how many times in the Gospels does our Lord say, Amen, Amen, I say unto thee? And that's like an infallible pronouncement of the extraordinary magisterium of the church. Yeah. But our Lord made many, many other pronouncements, and he didn't have to invoke, Amen, Amen, I say unto thee, right? And and what he said, all of his utterances had to be had to be accepted as true because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, but human fallibility being what it is, we see popes who do fail, and um, and we fear that under the present circumstances, the failure here is such that it, it even uh, objectively brings into question the whether whether. Francis has the Catholic faith and whether he's even a member of the Catholic Church or not. Mm -hmm. The things that he has questioned. Yeah. And not that he's just saying things we don't like him, we don't like him to say. The question is whether his teachings are at variance with the teaching of the Catholic Church, even the things that must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith, and the denial of which would make one a heretic. Not by your terms or mine, but by the Church's terms. This is a serious question today. Right. Uh, well, Father, we have more that I wanted to get into. I wanted to, to read another nice email, though, from a viewer all the way in uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you know, we, we spent some time ago, we uh, referenced Melbourne and the state of affairs there. And um, <clears throat> this viewer says, uh, whilst I have the opportunity, I would like to thank you for the content that has assisted my return and deeper knowledge and understanding of the Catholic faith and true church. Uh, he says, I had only ever known the Novus Ordo and left that church as a teenager. Uh, he says, two years ago, I returned uh, to the traditional Catholic church. Uh, he says, your recent presentations are, have been beautiful, moving, and extremely helpful regarding the interior life. So thank you for all of that. Viewer from Melbourne, Australia. Oh, very welcome, certainly. Yeah. From Melbourne, um, uh, dealing with the repression going on right there. Well, God bless you. We'll certainly keep you in our prayers. When people do send uh, inquiries in or help, you know, help uh, the program in any way, we, we do keep them in our prayers. We do. In fact, I, as you know, I offer Mass uh, once a month specifically for the intentions of our supporters. And, yes. and uh, that includes all of those who send in questions and answers, <laughs> too. So uh, thank you. God bless you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, and Father, we had a couple follow-up questions uh, concerning Malachi Martin. We, we've mentioned his name on, on several of our uh, recent programs, and uh, one of our viewers wrote in and said that um, the, the discussion has been fascinating, Father Jenkins, but he says, I was confused by the story that Father related about uh, Malachi Martin's supposed secret Episcopal consecration. If I recall correctly, Father said that uh, Father Martin claimed the occasion of his Episcopal consecration was the advance of the Nazis on the Vatican. But this makes no sense to me because uh, Father Martin was not ordained a priest until 1954. Mm -hmm. Am I missing something, or perhaps did Father Jenkins misspeak? And we actually had another viewer write in and say that she believed uh, the, the supposed secret consecration happened during the Cold War, not World War II. What do you, what do you uh, make of this, Father? Well, um... I mean, uh, both of these writers uh, give, make good points. And uh, Malachi Martin was ordained in 1954, as we verified. Yes. Um, but I was just relating the story as I heard it. And that's what I said. Uh, you know, I, the question that came in originally was, what do you think of Malachi Martin? And I just re recounted this story. I mean, I said a number of, I'd say, positive things about yes. uh, Malachi Martin, uh, meeting him and being impressed with certain things and but also certain peculiarities that I found rather troubling you know so I find him to be a bit of an enigma um, but I just related the story that I mentioned and I, I said at the time I, I found the person credible it's a person I'd known for a long time who told me that was personally present and claimed to, to personally witness this event and this is what this gentleman told me and on the veracity of the individual person, because of my 
personal credence, uh, let's say, in that individual, I thought it was believable. But, uh, yes, I mean, whether the, the person gave me the story incorrectly, well, obviously, if, if he, uh, what, what, you know, it depends on what Malachi Martin told him, that he claimed to be relating to me, you know, whether it was related to him by Malachi Martin exactly the way he told me, or whether he got some things mixed up, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's possible that I got things mixed up. This was a number of years ago. Um, but uh, he was very definite about the fact that Malachi Martin claimed that he was summoned to the Vatican, actually working in the Vatican, and was uh, summarily uh, consecrated bishop with, with others, I understood it was 11 others uh, from the story I was told, with the idea that the Vatican was in, in great danger and we must somehow preserve the church. And I, I thought, well, the story doesn't make any sense to begin with because, I mean, even if the Vatican were invaded by the, the Soviets, as it had earlier been in danger of being invaded by the Nazis, it's not as though the episcopacy would be snuffed out by the very fact. So why would it be necessary to summarily consecrate in the Vatican so suddenly, you know, 12 men with the idea that, gee, if the, you know, if the Soviets have their way, they're going to they're gonna snuff out all the other bishops in the world. It, it didn't make any sense. But anyway, um, and I, I think the, the man who told me this uh, got that reaction from me, that this doesn't really make any sense, you know. But he was quite certain that this is what he'd been told. This is what he heard him say. So, uh, again, do I, do I believe it happened? No. Do I believe that Malachi Martin told, said it in exactly these terms? Well, it's, it's human credibility at stake here. So, you know, it, it could be, it's hard to think, it was hard for me to think that the man could entirely make that up out of whole cloth, since it was so fantastic. So I think there's something behind it. Exactly what, I don't know. Do I, do, I, do I believe that such a consecration took place in the Vatican by Pope Pius XII? No, I don't believe that happened. Okay, okay. Uh, it's just that, the, you know, again, the question came up that somebody was being ordained, right? Yeah. <clears throat> by one of the Turk bishops, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> there was a question afterwards if there were fatal flaws in the way the ceremony was performed. And that Malachi Martin took some aside and said, look, I can rectify this for you right now. This is the story. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, again, as far as the credibility goes, uh, nobody out there really knows who related the story to me, and I'm not going to mention the names anyway. Uh, all I'm saying is that I found it credible to some extent anyway, but I can't vouch for everything that was said there, uh, including, you know, the, the period of time when it happened. Mm-hmm. But as I recall, that's what the gentleman told me that Malachi Martin had said. So even that I find now even less credible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Hey, well, one other question about Malachi Martin. Uh, Father, this viewer said that uh, Malachi Martin was apparently released from his vows taken as a priest, such as poverty. Uh, and instead of being called father, he was called doctor. So this viewer is wondering if it was, if it is possible to be released from vows after they were taken and uh, drop the title father and switch to this title of doctor. Is that even possible, Father? Oh, it's possible. Really? Sure. To be laicized. I mean, it depends on what vows he was released from. Uh, uh, he, he was a Jesuit. And um, this, the story that I, I see is that in 1964, he was troubled by what was going on at Vatican II. That seems awfully early on. I mean, Vatican II is still in progress. Uh, yeah, perhaps it wasn't even half finished by that time. And already, Malachi Martin was troubled by it and asked to be released from his Jesuit vows. Now, whether he asked to be released from the Jesuit order uh, or actually... Uh, to be released from his priestly vows entirely and laicized, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm always, I was always a little puzzled by that. Uh, and I, well, I, I still am. Exactly what vows was he released from? <clears throat> um, because the, the, the vows binding the Jesuits are rather severe. Uh, one could be released from the Jesuit order, but you know, again, this would take a higher authority. To release from the priestly vows entirely would be, I mean, we're talking about vows of uh, celibacy, you know, of uh, 
And uh, well, as a Jesuit, he would have had to take the vow of poverty too, you know, as a religious, and the vow of obedience, the Jesuit order. So as a religious, he would have to be released from those vows uh, to be released from the Jesuit order. So it's a, it's a question that somebody out there who's listening knows, knows the answer to. And I'd really appreciate getting some authoritative, reliable answer to this. Exactly what vows was he released from? I think it would have been, have to have been done by Pope Pius XII himself, okay. by the Holy See itself. Okay. Well, all right. Um, then another nice email, Father. Back from uh, August, we had a video that was titled Viral Tyranny, Bible, Catholic uh, versus Protestant in My Church Concubines. And this viewer said that... Um, he just wanted to write in and tell you how much he enjoyed that video. He said, Father Jenkins gave such good explanations of both topics. I have never heard anyone who has made the topics so clear. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank it's you very much. Impressive. Appreciate yeah. that. Yep. All right. Um, then another point here, Father, kind of uh, changing gears a bit. Uh, this viewer said that he wanted to thank you for uh, the edifying discussion about the interior life and the latest program. He says, I'm rather disillusioned with politics, which is diffi a difficult condition for an election year. Uh, spiritual doctrine provides an encouraging context for that sordid matter. Um, so, <clears throat> Father, he asks, um, how familiar are you with the role of practitioners of chaos magic in this and the previous elections uh, pro-Trump efforts? He says, I could discuss this at length, but... In very short, I do not think that President Trump is anything like the person he claims to be. I suspect he is dealing with forces that would ultimately destroy him. I have warned my Catholic friends not to expect him to save the country, but rather to ask Our Lady to beg her divine son to convert our country. I don't see how at this late date anything else would suffice to stay the hand of chastisement. How do you respond to that, Father? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I understand a certain part of that. Chaos, magic, I'm not chaos familiar magic, with that yeah. terminology. Sorry, I, I mean, chaos, I don't, magic, I, yeah. I understand, but yeah. uh, there must be a specific type of magic that refer, is referred to as chaos magic. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, uh, but does he say that there's chaos magic being used by pro-Trump forces? Is that what he says there? Mm -hmm. Did I see In this and the previous elections, pro-Trump <laughs> efforts. Pro-Trump efforts using chaos magic. Now, I'm, I know that the witches and other cultists have tried to cast a spell on Trump and to curse his uh, candidacy and all the rest. I'm not aware of any chaos magic involved here uh, to support him, really. Um, so I guess I'll have to have to look that up. If, it, if this individual can give us some references, uh, that would be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll follow up on that. But I mean, I agree totally. I mean, Trump, Donald Trump is not going to save America any more than you and I are going to save the church, right? The church is Christ's own foundation. It is his mystical body. No one can save it but himself, right? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, will save his church, okay? And uh, we know that, right? The gates of hell will not prevail. It is not up to anyone of us to claim, uh, I will save you, you know, that, that would make of ourselves a savior of the savior, and that, that, <laughs> that isn't right. Well, in a secular sense, Donald Trump is not going to save America either. Only God, again, can save America, the United States of America, and the reason being is what the United States of America has to be saved from is their sins. I mean, that is why we're being punished now, because of our sins. I mean, as I mentioned last time, I mean, all of the four sins that cry to heaven for vengeance, we are committing now with a vengeance. Uh, nationally, we've, we've justified these things. We've even, even, even glorified some of these things. And uh, talk about tempting God, daring God to do something about it. Every time Nancy Pelosi opens her mouth, it seems like a, it's a provocation of, you know, of God. So, so um, you know, we, we, what, I, what I mentioned in the last sermon here last Sunday, two days ago, I just find it so peculiar that here we are, with this divide, that we have a, a man who's a, a candidate for the presidency of the United States 
who is touting his Catholicism, wanting to, everyone to recognize what a, what a practicing Catholic he is. And that's a positive. While there's a nominee for the Supreme Court who is being blasted for her Catholicism, and as though that's an obstacle to become a, 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 an adju- a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. What is the problem? You know, in former times, a Catholic running for office would always face that hostility when it was the traditional faith they were dealing with. Well, now we have Joseph Biden, who wants to promote himself as this great Catholic for the sake of drawing, you know, the accolades of of Catholics and non-Catholics alike, you know, because he's such a great, pious, godly individual. And we have the same people who are pushing him forward toward the presidency, blasting Amy Coney Barrett for her Catholicism, right? And even that is is you know, basically conservative Francis Catholicism, right? Um, what is what is the thing here? I mean, is it that Francis is actually is is Joe Biden putting himself as being as more Catholic than Francis, or is Francis maybe he's not as Catholic as Joe Biden? I mean, even that we might because I don't know that Joe Biden has come out and pronounced himself a socialist, but in the latest encyclical. Francis has basically spoken against private property and said priority must be given to communal property, laying the groundwork uh, for the principles of socialism. You know, so uh, Francis might not, not even be as Catholic as Joe Biden, is, frankly, at this point. <clears throat> but it shows the divide here. But what it also shows, Tom, is that this is really going. This is the issue. The issue is the whole world's attitude toward Jesus Christ and his church. That's really the fundamental divide. This is what the big fight is right now. This is why you find something so more than peculiar, just odd. One candidate being promoted by some who want him to be recognized as this great Catholic to draw these votes while at the same time they're slamming this other candidate because she dares, well, as as Diane Feinstein said to Amy, Amy Amy Coney Barrett, the dogma speaks loudly within you or something like that. I guess the dogma doesn't speak loudly in Joe Biden, that's for sure. <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, we know what's going on here. One is an abortion, his religion really is abortion, okay? They climbed to the echelons of, of power by over the bodies of millions and millions of, of babies who were murdered. And there's another candidate here for the Supreme Court whose track record shows that she opposes that. So we're told, okay? And that is really the religion they're after here. They're not in favor of a religion of a Catholicism that would oppose that. They're in favor of this modernist, leftist Catholicism of Francis embodied in Joe Biden that would promote this horror as uh, something just positively good and desirable. But this is where the battleground is drawn, and it's right in Washington. It's right in the heart of Washington right now. But it's going on in the Vatican right now, what has been brewing there with the modernist takeover after Vatican II. That has found its way all the way into the halls of uh, Congress, Supreme Court, right? And um, it, 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 is, it is necessary it is inevitable that the battleground, the issue is going to be Christ and his church. They're going to be right in the center of this. The ultimate controversy is all going to come down to that. Right? Who Jesus Christ really is and the church that he actually established is going to have to, you know, is what they're, they're trying to uh, crush, trying to bury. Right? So anyway, um, but that is, you know, he is the central point, the, the central point of history, right? Of all human history, of all human hope, of all human existence, really. So yes, it's going to come down to that. Question of who he is and what he taught. But anyway, um, we have this uh, fact that no, no Donald Trump is going to make, is going to decide that. All we can do is pray for his conversion, personally, but to pray for his personal conversion. <clears throat> but even that is not going to save America, right? Um, 
it is going to have to be a matter of God, by his infinite mercy, providing the graces necessary to justify our nation from its horrible sinfulness right now. And that grace means it's going to have to move our people to repent of their sins, to repent of their sins, to renounce their sins, to turn to God and do penance for their sins, make reparation to him for their sins. This is the grace that is necessary now. When we pray, God bless America, we're asking in the very first place that God give that grace to justify this country from its sins, <clears throat> which, which are really destroying the country, uh, destroying the nation. And uh, remember what Our Lady said at Fatima, because of sinfulness of mankind, as a consequence, entire nations would be annihilated, she said, in 1917, July. She said that. And we don't want it to be the United States of America. You know, we hoped she wasn't talking about that. But then, only then can God actually glorify our country, you know, and make it something that is holy and pleasing to him uh, because of grace. And that comes from conversion. Our, our country has to convert. So um, we, we have to pray for that. We have to, we, have to, we have to labor for that. We have to work for that. We have to pray for it, both, right? Both those things. By the way, uh, that reminds me, last program, a uh, gentleman, I think it was a gentleman, wrote in. He spoke a number of languages, prayed the rosary in a number of languages, and asked how he could overcome a certain dryness. You know, And I got into the subject of the three ages of the interior life and so on, which he might not have felt quite helpful because he's probably looking for just some practical steps. Um, my point to him was, well, inevitably, <clears throat> there will be times when prayer including the rosary, despite your best efforts, will be dry, you know? And uh, expect that, because that's necessary a necessary uh, process to go through to prove to yourself, to establish for yourself that you're praying for God's glory and not for your own satisfaction. So you persevere in prayer, even when it's difficult. <laughs> but that didn't actually address... I think his question about how to pray the rosary fruitfully. And, of course, to pray the rosary fruitfully, it's not just a matter of making right, the right sounds, of the Our Father, the Hail Mary, you know, the Apostles' Creed, and so on. But it's what's in your mind and heart. I mean, prayer is raising your heart, your mind, your mind and your heart to God, which means turning your attention and your affection to God. We do that through the mysteries of the rosary. So the question is, how do we, whether we're completely unschooled, homeschooled, schooled, or hyper-schooled, as this gentleman seems, seems to have a good education. How do we turn our hearts and our minds to God in prayer? Well, first of all, again, we have to rely on God to draw us to him. You know, Our Lord says, no one can come to the Father except by me, and no one comes to me except the Father draw him. And so we know that it's a grace to harness the human attention, to harness the human mind, and uh, in spite of the human, uh, the vagaries of the human um, uh, imagination, is a very, very difficult, even for those who are well-disciplined in meditation. It takes an effort for them, right, to direct their attention. We all have ADHD. We all have that to a great extent, to some extent or another that our imaginations are constantly, constantly impeding that focus on God. We see, on the other hand, God give the grace to some of ecstasy, where he just draws their minds to it, draws their attention and holds it. That God holds their attention there. Right? That's wonderful to see, isn't it? Where they go into ecstasy and God holds their attention. They're just breathless almost. They're so, uh, just imagine, they're, they're even out of time, in the sense that they're not even aware of the passage of time or anything around them. All of their attention is devoted to him. But that's something that God gives, not something they induce in themselves. So I'd say, first of all, to anyone saying, I'm having trouble, I, I want to pray the rosary, not just say it, I want to pray it. I'm trying to focus my attention and my affection on the mysteries of the rosary. Well, maybe the best thing for them to do is to start by praying for that grace and just start the rosary by saying, oh God, I'm giving you this time of my life. I'm devoting this time to you, of my life to you. And during this time, 
I want to turn my attention and my affection to you, my mind and my heart, I want to give them to you, so that all of my attention and all of my affection are focused on you, my God. Uh, please forgive me for my uh, weakness. I mean, what do we expect from dust and ashes? As he says, God said, right? I'm a man that thou art dust, and that the dust thou shalt return. So uh, please help me. Please help me. Well, if the person dedicates that time to God, makes that act of the will, and never deliberately withdraws it, even if his mind wanders a thousand miles in the process, and he keeps constantly catching his attention going here and catching his attention going there, he's never made the act of the will to revoke that decision to give God that time. If I'm going to pray the five glorious mysteries of the rosary, and I say, I'm going to take this time, the next 20 minutes of my life I give it to you, this is my intention. <clears throat> and I never revoke that, then that intention prevails. I mean, that was my intent to give that, and I've never revoked it. <clears throat> if I come along and I say uh, five minutes into the rosary, uh, you know, I'm kind of bored with this. I'm going to think about the, the uh, this math problem or my assignment here or my work. I've revoked the decision there, right? But otherwise, my intention remains what it was, even though I may be trying constantly challenged to bring myself back to it. One of the things that we run into, though, all of us, is that when we do find our mind has wandered, we get a little frustrated. And so we, we, we let the frustration distract us. We might be distracted with something else, but when we find that we were distracted by something else, we get frustrated with the fact that we were distracted by something else, and then the frustration becomes the distraction. <laughs> and we get kind of uh, nervous and kind of uh, tense about it. And uh, that's just another distraction. So what we need to do in a case like that is, as soon as we realize that our minds have wandered, just immediately, effortlessly draw our minds back to the matter at hand. If it's a visitation, it's a visitation, right? If it's a crucifixion, it's a crucifixion. Don't fret about it. Don't worry about it. It's just who we are. It's our human weakness. And again, we've already said, you know, we've already acknowledged the weakness is there, so we expect that these things are going to happen. But we can't waste time fretting about it. We just should immediately, carefully turn our minds back to where it belongs. And, uh, and so it is that we carry on. But I think it's very important that when we begin to pray, our first pray prayer be to our Lord and our Blessed Mother. And we tell her, I want to meditate upon the mysteries of thy life, Lord. Please help me. And we turn to Our Lady and we say, well, Our Lady, I want to do what you did with your life. I want to do what you did in your heart. I want to ponder the mysteries of the life of Jesus in my own heart. So I want to have in my heart what is in your heart, that is pondering the mysteries of the life of our Lord. <clears throat> Please help me. Ask her to help you do that. And uh, if you just start out with a simple prayer like that, and that intention, asking our Lord and his Blessed Mother to help you, to be mindful of the, the mysteries of the rosary, and to even enter into them more deeply and understand them and make connections in your mind and realize the richness that is there, not just be very superficial, saying, oh, yeah, 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 Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple and he stayed there and they left. <clears throat> you know, if that's all you think about during the, the fifth uh, joyful mystery, you'll never go any deeper. But there's so much more there. There's so much more to think about with regard to that. So, many, so, much, so much more implied by that. You know, so much to learn from that. And you ask Our Lord and Our Lady to help you to penetrate the mystery. <clears throat> or maybe, better yet, the mystery to penetrate you. <laughs> Pen penetrate your, the darkness of your mind and your heart so that you appreciate the significance of it. Why, the Gospel says that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. And what did she make of them? Well, we're asking her to enable us to follow her in that. And we're asking our Lord to, to enable us to uh, appreciate the significance of the things he's done and said, and the example he set for us, and the example he gave for us in our Blessed Mother. What could be more pleasing to God than that? Even the very fact that you're asking for that pleases him so much that even if human weakness manifests itself, as it inevitably must, but for some 
extraordinary grace, um, God will be pleased with that prayer. And he will answer that. And there will be a spirit of devotion there, but it won't be given to you for the sake of making you feel good about yourself so much. It'll be good to enable you to love God more and appreciate his love for you more. That's the ultimate objective. So, But anyway, I just thought I would kind of try to slide that in there because I, I felt bad that I hadn't really responded what I, really to what I thought the gentleman was asking last, last time. Mm-hmm. Cool. But yeah, I think that's very enlightening, Father. Very helpful. Very practical. So... Thank you for that. Uh, we got through a lot tonight, and uh, thanks for being here. Appreciate your time. Well, absolutely. Thank okay. you. Yeah, no God problem. bless you all. Yeah. And God bless our viewers, too. <clears throat> absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.